0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Tim.
1: Hi, Bob. How you doing? Good. How are you?
0: Can't complain. Let me introduce us. My name is Robert Wright. This is the right show available on streaming, video, and via audio podcast. You are Tim Stevens, Senior Lecturer in Global Security at King's College in London. Is that still true? That is correct, yeah. And Head of the King's as in King's College, not as in the King, I guess, but the King's Cybersecurity <laughs> Research Group. Your author of Cybersecurity and the Politics of Time, which sounds a little more metaphysical than the average book about uh, cybersecurity. That's published by Cambridge University Press. Is everything true so far? Certainly book. Bob. Yep. Uh, so we're going to talk, as people might have gathered, about uh, cybersecurity. Um... And, uh, the, um, you know, I, I should say at the outset that I'm a little bit of a, a kind of a, uh, global governance aficionado and a longstanding question of mine is why, why, why don't we have more in the ways of laws, uh, and maybe, uh, explicit norms in the realm of, uh, cybersecurity? I want to eventually get to that, but first I want to, uh, Kind of go through some recent stories about that that have probably uh, come to the attention of of our viewers and listeners in the realm of cybersecurity. Just by way of kind of establishing the lay of the land, what's out there, what 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 there is to be concerned about or not concerned about. Um, so let me start with a story that caught a lot of people's attention some months ago, a few months ago, the Solar Winds story. So. As I understand what happened is SolarWinds is a company that provides some kind of software to a bunch of corporations and government agencies. Some nefarious entity gained access to the SolarWinds update mechanism. So SolarWinds, you know, periodically provide software updates to all these clients. Somebody got into that system and by virtue of that gained access to computers at, I guess, thousands of, uh, corporations and or government agencies. Now, what got the most attention in the press was their gaining access to the government agencies, but, uh, like the Treasury Department in the U.S., uh, but I gather that actually, uh, more of the, uh, you know, there were more corporate clients who were infiltrated than, than government clients, so it may not be entirely clear what their, what the main goal of the hackers was. But, so far, have I, have I characterized the situation accurately, the, the solar winds hack?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, the interesting thing about it is, uh, put yourself in the mind of the attacker. When you, when you say, what is it the attacker or the intruder wishes to achieve um, through compromising sort of wide, such a wide set of targets? Because yes, there's clearly a bunch of government agencies, uh, but also a whole set of corporates, many of whom we might not know about yet. Because, you know, word on the street is that they're not all declaring that they were affected by solar winds. Um, It may be several things might be going on here. The first might be, you know, a dedicated espionage campaign against uh, a set of highly targeted or highly selected targets. uh, Or it may be a proof of concept. uh, Or it may be just quite an effective attempt to sow uncertainty and doubt in the wider government corporate ecosystem of the united states because it's certainly done that i think we can all agree mm-hmm. um but it may just have been a, a targeted uh, uh, campaign that just spread wider and that's one of the things about operations in this environment is it's sometimes very difficult to bound precisely uh, your target set and and deny the possibility for kind of collateral damage if you like
0: so in other words, it's not inconceivable that they just had one target in mind. Maybe it's somebody who really wanted to get into Microsoft or something or really wanted to get into the Treasury Department or really wanted to uh, – we just we just can't say for sure. Um, I, yeah, it's possible. I mean, I, I'm guessing that it was actually a lot more
1: structured and targeted than that. But, yeah. I mean, I think there's always the, the, the possibility of, of um, uh, you know, if you spread a piece of malicious software, a piece of malware – uh-huh. Uh, and is dedicated at a particular type of software vulnerability, all the organizations that have that vulnerability are going to be affected most likely. Yeah. So even if you're just targeting five, you know, three corporates and two government agencies, um, there's going to be a bunch of other uh, uh, targets that have that same problem because they haven't yet patched that vulnerability. So it's, it's very difficult to know um, precisely uh, who's going to be affected in an operation like this.
0: Okay, and th- this was... Uh- pretty widely attributed to russians how confident should we be in that attribution and 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 if the answer is pretty confident what do we mean by russians we mean somebody somewhere in russia or or we know that it's this uh that it's a the, the russian government or what it's a particular uh part of the russian security apparatus yeah that's
1: that's the uh, suggestion Um, I'm not going to go into precisely whether that's an accurate attribution or not in terms of the precise part of Russian government that's been identified. Uh, But we're getting much better at attribution now. Um, And that's partly because we're good at identifying the the types of operations, the patterns of operations, the types of tools that are being used uh, by intruders and attackers. Uh, Also, you have to set it against the kind of strategic background, which is, does it make sense for for the Russians in this case? or the chinese in this microsoft incident that's just going on at the moment does it make sense to kind of point the finger at these particular actors and agents um so there's a whole kind of attribution picture which is both technical and forensic but it's also strategic and uh, and political and in this case it it is part of a kind of pattern of behavior that certain aspects of the russian security and intelligence services like to do this kind of thing with respect to american targets but also to targets in in europe and elsewhere
0: Okay, uh, so you said, uh, some of it's forensic and some of it's something else. I mean, how much, it sounds like almost a lot of it is, is, uh, this is the kind of thing they would do. Like, like, I mean, how much of it is, is more concrete than this is the kind of thing they would do. This okay. is the kind of tool they have used. Let me be very clear. That's not what I'm saying.
1: I'm not saying we're just going to put it onto the Russians because it looks like a Russian kind of operation. What I'm right. saying is that's further corroborating evidence. Of, does this make sense? Uh-huh. Right? Because things can be spoofed and faked in this environment. If you're smart enough to kind of lay the the, the seeds uh, or to lay the, you know, offset the blame on somebody else. Okay? Uh-huh. You can kind of uh, a false flag or something like that. But we're getting much, much better at the forensic attribution here. So we can trace back. When I say we, I mean, you know, the U.S., um, its allies in the five eyes, the U.K., Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and other partners like Holland, the uh, sorry, Netherlands, the French, uh, Israel, and so on, have actually been able to trace back these attacks to sometimes a particular unit or particular individual, all right? Mm-hmm. Now, assuming that that is the case, it's not going to make much sense if we trace it back to somebody in Berlin, right? Because then you have to ask yourself, does it make sense for this German government agent to be attacking the United States? Well, no, it doesn't, right? So you think, okay, maybe my attribution is a bit skewy here. But it does make sense if you trace it back to a known um, operator or, or unit in Moscow or Beijing or potentially other places. It's just another kind of triangulation. It's exactly what you would do if you were a member of the press. You say, "Okay, we have this piece of evidence here. What other pieces of evidence can we bring to bear on this problem to make sure that I'm confident that when I send in my piece to the sub-editor, he's not going to turn around and say, you haven't done due diligence on your sources. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's exactly the same kind of thing. And that's when you have an intelligence attribution of a cyber operation, you have to, it's a sort of multi-stream intelligence affair. It's not just about asking about the computer
0: forensics. Okay. well, is it possible for you to say, how confident you feel in this case that it's a Russian government enemy? What, 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 uh, or entity? What, what kind of probability of confidence you would? Are you ninety-five percent sure? Or yeah, I'm, I mean, I wouldn't go ninety-five percent. I think that's very difficult. But I'd say I'm, I'm fairly, fairly confident. Yeah, I
1: have high confidence in the what is now a fairly developed attribution capability uh, amongst the Western powers. Mm-hmm. Um, now I know that there are people who are going to say, yeah, but just because. They just because the U.S. says it's the Russians doesn't mean it's the Russians because clearly the U.S. has got an axe to grind against the Russians, right? But the, re- the reverse is true. In as well. fact, I would like to pause <laughs> and say that myself. Now, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it always the difficulty we have here is that uh, we've come across this time and time and time and time again is that when it's in, because this is principally an intelligence game. Uh, and you develop uh, a picture of your adversary through intelligence means, through what we call sources and methods. Um, those sources and methods are clandestine or covert sources and methods. And you can't just put them out into open court and say, this is how we know that Russian right. unit whatever was responsible, because to do that, you're burning your own capabilities, right? And intelligence agencies, whether it's cyber, whether it's human intelligence or signals intelligence, whatever it is, are not going to put those sources and methods into open court because then the the enemy, the adversary, knows precisely Mm -hmm. what they are. But that does mean there's a PR aspect to this, because when the U.S. and its allies put forward attribution, they say, okay, uh, sorry, their, their critics say, well, you've got to show us you're working. And they turn around and say, well, we can't because those are classified. So you've got this perpetual kind yeah. of problem. So what it, this is why in recent years we've seen a, a concerted effort to try and attribute collectively so that that intelligence has been shared with the UK, with France, with Germany, Netherlands, South Korea, whoever it happens to be. And they can take a look at it in a classified sense and say, yes, we agree with that. Mm-hmm. Or no, we don't agree with that. Or we need further evidence or corroboration, whatever. Because it's meant to create a much more trusted impression of precisely what it is. Yeah, that, but um, I mean,
0: you know. you, would you forgive me for some skepticism here? I mean, first of all, like, I went, mm-hmm. you know, I recall the the, the the origins of the Iraq war very vividly, right?
1: Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: I mean, we were systematically misled. And it's not even clear that our our government, it's not clear to me that our government was actually lying. I think, you know, they may have talked themselves into believing all this stuff. But the point is... You know, I, I presume, and I presume that, that the British government chimed in and re, you know, uh, and, and so on. I mean, it's, it's not that hard to get your allies to chime in. And it's a kind of a natural thing for your allies' intelligence agencies to quote, be on the same page as you write because you're looking at the same data. You, you're looking at it with the same set of biases. Um, I, I just have kind of a default skepticism increasingly about uh, claims made about countries that do things when the evidence is not transparent. And uh,
1: well, the thing that they thing that the allies and others have done in terms of attribution is they might not be able to release their sources and methods, but they're going to release precisely what they know about um, these attackers, their IP addresses uh, so that's where they are, uh-huh. you know, down to the very building in a kind of naming and shaming kind of way. They've done this with the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Russians and others. Um, but they're also going to say, you know, this, this is the vulnerability that needs to be patched. OK, this is the thing that's being exploited in your networks and systems. This is what you need to do to
0: Yeah, well, that's valuable, okay? but that's Which separate valuable, from attribution.
1: Yeah. It is a separate one. But let's be clear about the Iraq war. And I'm no apologist for the UK government at all, but the you know elements who were part of the decision-making processes d- during the Iraq War have been very vocal and said we messed up. You know we made a mistake. Uh, we look at this now. There was a bit of groupthink going on, and the intelligence decision-making process in a country like the UK has been greatly improved. It's not perfect. Uh, no bureaucracy or organisation ever is, but it's been made more uh, 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 transparent, more accountable. Um, but the, you know, we're not talking necessarily about the same, uh, bureaucratic mechanisms here. You know, there are different organizations involved. Um, there's overlap, of course, and to be skeptical about this is fine, but the thing is also you can put the counter case, you know, you can go, uh, okay, so you tell us why the case that we've made is, is wrong. And that's a perfectly valid thing for you to be able to do. You tell us why the case not only that the U.S. government and its formal government intelligence allies have done, but also dozens of private sector companies that have also come to similar, but not always the same, mm-hmm. conclusions. Uh, and there is disagreement sometimes between the various actors here, and that includes disagreement between government.
0: Now, now, in this case, is there consensus among the, the corporate entities uh, attacked and the government on on the origin of the? The solar winds hack,
1: yeah. There seems to be fairly, fairly high degree of, of consensus, yeah. And that's, that's the Russian government. The thing you have to remember is that these are not just one off incidents. The agencies, much like um, you and I can walk down the street, and somebody who does automated gate analysis can recognize that you are different from me in the way that, that, that I walk, mm-hmm. the way that you lead your life, your daily routine is different from mine as well, but it has a pattern, okay. Nobody can. Vary it so much that it looks different from day to day. And the same is true of the operators in this environment. Okay. Okay. There is this, you know, you can, yes, you can fake some of it for sure. But if you've been tracking a particular unit of Russian intelligence for six years, say, and you're a corporate who's got headquarters in London, New York, Tel Aviv, and Mumbai, say, and your, your crews have been tracking the same intelligence actors for six years. You know the signs. You know how they operate. You know the sort of pattern of life analysis that you can bring to bear on these uh, in a way that is it's very, very difficult to either fake or to ignore when it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just to, to, to say, OK, well, they would say that, wouldn't they, does have a certain validity in some circumstances. But it's you know this is the nature of conspiracy to say that they're all in this together because they would say that it's like well have you ever tried getting all government agencies to say the same thing under normal circumstances? Have you also got the corporate sector uh, to say the same thing under under normal circumstances mm-hmm. and the journalists? You know it's very difficult to get all well, those people the to say the same thing, right? I
0: mean the journalists are dependent on the aforementioned for their in, in, in most part. cases there are very few journalists writing. For mainstream organizations that have the independent capacity to, to make that judgment. is true
1: that that is true and they rely on government sources
0: i mean this uh, this takes us back to iraq i mean you know these were not stupid people at the new york t- times uh no. mindlessly repeating the claims
1: but, what's, <laughs> but what happened with the iraq war was that a lot of for example of uk decision making it was hugely unpopular remember in the uk i mean mm-hmm. literally a million people were on the streets protesting against going to war in iraq because they didn't believe the evidence and there were people inside government that didn't believe the evidence. And the problem was that they only had one data source. <laughs> and they yeah. were relying the whole premise <laughs> of going to well, war, you know, one data source and the pressure of the United States yeah. that Tony Blair was all too happy to go along with. Right. Yeah. And, and people knew in government that wasn't enough, but yet the decision was made. It was a political decision as indeed is public attribution. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But there are more data points now.
0: You know, this is a tangential anecdote, but I didn't, I, uh, uh, Anticope. But I don't know if you're uh, up on this uh, controversy over the New York Times podcast, uh, Caliphate. No. Uh, they had to retract the whole thing. And anyway, it was premised on this one uh, guy, Canadian, who supposedly had been this jihadist who, who who was part of ISIS and killed all these people. The New York Times ran the podcast, notwithstanding doubts that surfaced in the middle of it. And one way the Times... Reassured themselves in the wake of these doubts was they called uh, like their main source was the fact that this guy was bragging on social media about having executed people for ISIS. So once the doubts arose, uh, they they called the U.S. Uh, you know uh, they, they had the reporters call their sources in U.S. intelligence and said, "Yeah, he's on our no-fly list." Yeah, and they mm. called their sources in, in in Canadian intelligence and yeah, he's def- definitely on our list. Well, it turns out there's no reason to believe that any of them were going on anything more than the one data point that this guy bragged about it on social media. Yeah, now I, I now know. I, I, I know that this is <laughs> very different from what you're saying. It's just, it's just a cautionary tale mm, uh, for ju- journalists relying on like multiple sources in multiple intelligence agencies. Let me let me and and, and I think in in that case,
1: Bob, there's a lot of people on no fly lists who shouldn't be on there. Let's be honest. Right. Yeah, sure. And and he was maybe one of those. I don't know. But But, uh, yeah,
0: this is I mean, this is also a story about uh, the incentives of journalists to report dramatic things. And Mm. and and that uh, and there's plenty. Well, let me let's move to another example. I don't want to let go of SolarWinds because I have questions about this. But let's move to a recent example that is qualitatively different because solar winds is a case where, okay, they've infiltrated, but they haven't attacked in the sense of damaging physical stuff. They haven't done any power grids, right? I mean, this is, so far as we know, this is in the realm of espionage, right? Absolutely, now yeah. There was a more recent story uh, that's different in the New York Times where they said there's some reason to believe that a power outage in Mumbai, India, uh was caused by Chinese hackers or government hackers who were sending a signal to India in the wake of a skirmish a border skirmish about a territorial dispute. Um now one of the reporters there I believe is David Sanger in the New York Times piece. He's he he's very good at writing dramatic stories and 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 I I'll leave it at that. I, I, I'm not saying I've, I've ever like caught him saying anything flatly untrue, uh, but uh, but he's good at finding eye-catching stories. And uh, I'm curious what your take is um, on 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 that. Like how 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 confident should I be that that the Chinese uh, shut down Mumbai?
1: I don't think I, I haven't seen. You know, uh, a convincing case that it was them, but then again i I have no particular reason to doubt it either. I mean, I don't work in a classified space, so I'm in exactly the same space as the rest of us. Um I get to read the newspapers and see the news reports. but again, it's 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 a kind of the one of the interesting things about that was that the Indian government turned around and said no, it said no, it wasn't the Chinese. Oh did they? Um, that's the news that's the report I read in The Times of India which I mm-hmm. assume is also a similar newspaper of, of record. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the, the Indian government said, no, it wasn't the Chinese. And the reason for that is because the Indian government cannot be seen to have vulnerable networks that might be exploited by the Chinese, even but if it there was the Chinese. That could be the reason.
0: It could be it that could they really be. don't think it was the Chinese.
1: Or it could not, it just simply wasn't the Chinese. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so there's, there's quite a lot of kind of ambiguity in this space. Um, and I suspect what will happen is, that, I mean, I haven't been following that story very closely. I'll be very honest with you. Uh, intriguing though it is, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, or does it? You know, why would uh, China be switching the lights on and off in Mumbai? Um, you know, is it just a demonstration of capability? Is it a form of signaling? Is it complete nonsense? Well, at th- th- the moment, we don't know. But I suspect in time, something that looks a little bit like the truth may emerge. But you have to do a lot of that investigative work fairly rapidly mm-hmm. uh, before systems cycle through their storage and so on. Um, but I, I don't know. I simply don't know. I mean, it's speculative at the moment. Um, uh, you know, David Sanger's got his, his ear very close to the ground when it comes to national security and cyber affairs in particular. He, he, so I don't know.
0: He does. At the same time, there are definitely people in uh, the American intelligence apparatus whose, whose vision uh, is not entirely uninfluenced by ideological disposition. And absolutely there are, right. there are China hawks, just as there were Iraq hawks who wound up uh, misleading us, whether intentionally or not, there are China hawks. There are. And, uh, and so, you know, skepticism they're, they're, is
1: is kind of my default mode. Uh, absolutely. No, that's fair enough, Bob. I mean, the thing is there are a lot more China hawks, I would suggest, than they ever were Iraq hawks. Uh, I mean, not a lot of the Iraq hawks were kind of, you know, hardcore neocons and stuff, but the Chinese hawks are fairly endemic one might argue within hmm. washington and, and on the hill and inside the beltway and much further uh, beyond as well um and you might argue that sowing this story in the new york times is beneficial to that program um you know it's not like we haven't seen a lot of, lot of china bashing over the last half a decade and more is it we've had people on the hill commissions and committees and so on uh, pointing out the threat from uh, the existential threat from china for as long as i can recall
0: mm-hmm um so uh, to get back briefly to the solar winds thing, you said we we have developed a, a, a better forensic means for nailing these things down. Is there an example of a forensic thing we're, we're pretty good at now uh, that we didn't used to be so good at? And an example that kind of a layperson could understand? Well, I am a layperson. I'm not
1: a computer scientist. I'm a political okay. scientist. Okay, well, so still, you know there. what I mean. Well, I can't. I'm not going to go into the technical details because I don't want to get them wrong. It's as simple yeah. as that. You know, I can read through an advisory published by the FBI or the CIA or DHS or in my own country, uh, the National Cybersecurity Center uh, and, and make some sense of it. But it's not my job. I'm not a forensic computer scientist. So I can't okay. answer that question.
0: Uh, OK, so you know. So so well, I mean, how confident are you? uh I mean, you know, roughly speaking, what we mean by forensic, right? The kinds of things that they say yeah. they've gotten better at, right? Can you, can you yeah. just flesh that out a little? What, what do, I mean, do you mean IP addresses or? It, it's that, uh,
1: but it's also the nature of the software that's being used. Okay, so uh, what happens is that, that, that there's a, an expression, a guy called Martin Lubicki, uh, he's a very well-known scholar in the field, defense scholar. He says that, you know, there's no forced entry in cyberspace. It's not like going up to someone's house and breaking the door down. You have to be able to pick the lock to get in. Okay, mm-hmm. You can't do it that sort of brute force way. So what that means is there has to be a vulnerability in a computer system that you can find and exploit, preferably before the owner of the system has noticed that there's a vulnerability. Okay? So th- And to do that, you need bits of software that are going to be able to uh, uh, get in through. They're going to exploit that vulnerability, get in and then do something on the other side. Mm-hmm. And the malicious software, the malware that is used for those comes in many different sorts. And as with any kind of text or technology, um, there is, there is identities built into that, 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 that correspond sometimes to the people that built it, to the, to the type of coding that's involved, um, almost to the style in some cases. Sometimes mm-hmm. it reuses bits of tools that were found elsewhere and have been attributed to, to other actors. So you begin to do that kind of really forensic work, not just about where things have come from and where they're going and what they did, but actually about the tools themselves. And there's a lot of very, very skilled people out there, not just in the intelligence community, but outside in the private sector as well. And that's their job, okay? That's their job. And and in addition to that, all the kind of pattern of life analysis that I was talking about and all the more kind of um, uh, contextual stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we got very, very good at that forensic um, aspect of uh, you know getting to the bottom of who's responsible for these operations. But it's not, it's, it's an intelligence game. It's not kind of the same degree of evidence or the same quality evidence sometimes as you would expect in a court of law. There are other things involved as well because you're dealing in the messy world of international politics. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's you, the, the point I would additionally make about attribution is that who does it serve to make fake fake, uh, claims about um, another state's culpability? It can do under certain circumstances for sure. Um, But if you're repeatedly doing this, uh, do you not lose the moral high ground by constantly accusing a state that may in fact be innocent. The other question you might ask is, well, just because you might not like or uh, uh, appreciate the attribution to Russia on this particular occasion – Could you help explain to an audience why we're pretty certain Russia is responsible for all this other stuff as well? Mm -hmm. So that's what I was saying earlier. If it fits a pattern of behavior that has a a sort of detectable strategic intent and fits with a whole range of other behaviors, that's one element of making attribution. It it shouldn't seal the case because you're you're absolutely right. It's like, well, just because it looks like this other stuff, it doesn't mean that it was them. But you put all this together as you would in any good intelligence product and you come up with a conclusion that has a level of probability attached to it. Mm -hmm. When they say we are confident that this was the Russians, there'll be a level of confidence in there. It isn't saying it's 100%. It might not even be saying it's 95%. It might be saying it's 80% or 70% or 60%. Mm -hmm. So high, middle or low uh, 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 um, confidence. And you will see, for example, In the intelligence community, the DNI report that came out after the 2016 hack and leak operations against the Democratic National Committee, there were disagreements between the agencies about the levels of confidence in particular elements of the evidence that was being, sorry, in terms of the attribution for particular aspects of those operations. So there is disagreement. And I think it's important to, to sort of consider that you know, not everyone agrees with all these things on some occasions. In fact, there might be quite vociferous disagreement on occasions. But, yeah. you know, it's not that states are, are willy-nilly um, attributing things to countries without some kind of, uh, um, you know, confidence and, mm-hmm. and, and some kind of resolve behind it as well. So, Just it's, calling it, out the Russians all the time is pointless.
0: It sounds like it's mainly – the evidence tends to be in the realm of circumstantial evidence, but you're saying there is such a thing as – almost overwhelming no, circumstantial evidence.
1: That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying if, you, if, you, if your attribution, your public attribution is a political decision based on, based on the back of, of intelligence deliberation within mm. the national security apparatus of your country, which they all are, that intelligence product that is informing that decision will, be, uh, uh, will take all the intelligence uh, streams available to it and combine it
0: to make a case
1: for what has actually happened. And there will be intelligence that disagrees yeah. with other sources. Yeah, I, I
0: get all that. When I say circumstantial, what I mean is it's not like the Iran nuclear inspectors. They can, they can, they can show up and take a picture of the centrifuge and, and unambiguously document the output and stuff like that. You know, they can say there is a facility here or there is this covert facility here. There are cases mm. where, uh, the evidence is what you might, is tantamount to eyewitness evidence, in other words. Um, and yeah. y- you don't, and I can imagine that in the realm of, of cyber. I can imagine a world in which, uh, an IP, I see, I, don't, I just don't know the technical stuff of, of, of whether an IP address means that an attack originated from my computer in this house. Maybe sometimes it does, but it sounds to me like, it's pretty rarely evidence that and I don't want to belabor this. We, we should we should move on. But it sounds to me like it's pretty rare in this realm that the evidence is, uh, you know, it's tantamount to, to what in a court of law is non circumstantial. Right. Uh, it depends what
1: you mean by evidence. If you mean the evidence that can be presented in public and the evidence that actually informs the decision, they're slightly different things. Yeah. because there's a classification boundary there that simply the I intelligence so agencies can't cross. Which I know is infuriating and frustrating. Yeah. And well, it's inevitably going to sort of cause some degree of skepticism.
0: And one reason I care about this, you know, I, I'm, be, I'm being a skeptic, but I'd actually love to hear that we can be very confident of these attributions because I would like to see some kind of uh, international treaty uh, governing cyber weapons. And one obstacle to that would be if you can never confidently attribute the attack to a, a country. You know, things look much brighter for a treaty if, if you can confidently attribute attacks to given actors, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of thoughts been given to this. Um, and there's a couple of ways of approaching it. The first is just to sort of double down on this whole attribution thing is to develop some kind And of, this is not my idea. I'm just saying this is the idea. In fact, it was floated under the Trump administration, uh, amongst many other places. They called it the cyber deterrence initiative. But it was effectively uh, an attribution mechanism. Like minded countries come together and then they can discuss the intelligence that's available to respond to particular occurrences. Um, you know, it's the problem with that is that it's always if you're not a like minded country, right. <laughs> it begins to look like the like minded countries are ganging up on the usual. So, suspects. They're, so they're
0: basically talking um, about our allies getting together.
1: Yeah, it's a kind of NATO.
0: Because the other the thing. other model is you know a treaty like the Chemical Weapons Convention, yeah, uh, where there is a body uh, charged with inspection, and membership in the treaty is not an ideological thing. You know, uh, as it happens, there are democracies that are members, there are authoritarian countries that are members, uh, but they all agree to be bound by certain strictures. As it happens, there has lately been a controversy about whether the OPCW's uh, uh, assessment of an alleged uh, chemical weapons attack in syria was was swayed unduly by the Trump administration. Uh, but that's another uh, you know, and, and and sadly, institutional institutions like national ones are not not uh, guaranteed to be free of corruption. But, um, but there is that model. And, and, and I would have been shocked if you had told me that was the model the Trump administration is pursuing. Uh, and no. indeed, it sounds like it's not. <laughs> it but, wasn't, no. But it, it sounds like, given the nature of the evidence, you would need a credible body of adjudication that, for whatever reason, had acquired real credibility. And if it deserved the credibility, you could probably be confident of, of its judgments. In other words, it sounds like it's possible to reach a high level of confidence in at least some cases about attribution. The question would be whether the body uh, involved in enforcing a treaty had and maintained the trust of nations.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's really, really difficult. And I think and we'll come to that specific issue in a sec. I think we, we need to consider when we're having this discussion, and I think these are discussions that we need to have, um, about, you know, sort of trust and attribution and confidence and all that um, is that we're relatively early in our understanding of this environment. You know, you and I can remember a world before the Internet, right? Or at least before the World Wide Web and cell phones and all that kind of thing. Oh,
0: oh I can <laughs> remember a world before <laughs> personal well. computers. I don't know about you. <laughs> exactly
1: right. So but we, can, we kind of understand. But when you think about it like that, you, like that we've come a, a long and difficult way since the beginning of the 90s when the World Wide Web was invented. It was only mm-hmm. sort of, you know, 30 years, 20 years ago or whatever, 30 years ago now. Um, we're still learning what this environment is about. We're still learning what states can do. And we're still developing ways of regulating that behavior. And that's the stage we're at at the moment. In terms of regulating that behavior, you're absolutely right. Um, were we to have some kind of international adjudication mechanism for this environment, it's very hard at the moment to imagine what it would look like. Because let's face it, you're not taking this to the UN Security Council when when there's the US, the UK, Russia and China are the main antagonists in this environment. Um, so, or well, some of the main. No, although that would be a know, good,
0: I mean, that's better it, than it just being a bunch of authoritarian countries or a bunch of democracies, right? I mean, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. It's not going to work
1: either way. And I remember the former president of Estonia suggesting we should have something like a cyber NATO a few years ago, which was a non-starter because it was already branded like NATO. And mm-hmm. if you're Russia or China, you know what that stands for, right? So it has to be a much more broad brush approach has to have buy-in from, from people who are not like-minded countries in your normal kind of alliance uh, structures. But, of course, even if you did have uh, some kind of globally or internationally mandated institution that's going to adjudicate on, call it just call it cyber operations for now, mm-hmm. um, do they have a monitoring mission in terms of... Uh, you know, capabilities development in nation states? Who's going to verify that countries are saying that, you know, are, are abiding by the, the the rules of the road? Uh Who's going to monitor compliance with the rules of the road? Who's going to uh, sanction those countries? Uh, so on and so forth. And the problem here is that we're just dealing with code. Mm-hmm. Um, we're dealing with ones and zeros that are packaged up in various, very cunning and, and creative ways. And they're not like guns and tanks and bombs, and planes and warships that we can count, and we can count them from space. You know, you can't do that with software, which is what we're talking about here. It's incredibly difficult to think of a, a regime in a global governance sense, as you mentioned earlier, that's actually going to be able to do this work. So instead, that the energy of the international community, such as it is, has been in developing norms of responsible state behaviour, which they hope that can be that emerge and cascade and get socialised in the international community that say, this is what you can and cannot
0: do. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of norms, we've talked about two, two kinds of cases, solar winds, you know, there was a penetration of a bunch of systems and presumably uh, surveillance, you could call it data theft, whatever, but it wasn't an attack in a kind mm-hmm. of military sense. And then we talked about the India case, where if that was another nation, uh, responsible for taking out that power grid. That's a qualitatively different kind of thing. Now, my understanding had been that to the extent that norms can even be said to clearly exist in this realm, the first kind of thing is more acceptable. In other words, in the solar winds case, I assume that my government is doing more or less the exact same thing in some country or other this year. Where, and, well, Actually, as it happens, I know my government has done something very comparable to the India thing with the Stuxnet attack uh, mm-hmm. on on Iran, where they actually destroyed centrifuges. And and you know, a, among my problems with that is that it 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 makes it kind of hard for us to deliver sermons about the importance of norms in this realm. But um, is it the case, notwithstanding the fact that that? Probably my own government is is playing in both of these realms that there it, there is a distinction here, and it is more normatively accepted for a nation to be in the surveillance game than it is for it to be in the taking out power grids and centrifuges yep. game
1: and, and the discussions that have been had at the United Nations uh, would recognize recognize this implicitly you know we we all spy on each other even mm-hmm. friends spy on each other and, and you're absolutely right in that we call it espionage. All states do it, and we can assume that they're doing it through cyber means as much as they are through more conventional methods. I think that's uh, un- unmistakable. And what's been really interesting about winds, from the outside at least, is that this is the first time I've heard you know, high-level U.S. commentators saying, well, yeah, we do this to everyone as well. It's always been the, the elephant in the room in these discussions. And what I've been hearing this year is a lot of people actually articulating that and saying, okay, so if they can do it and we can do it, but we don't like it when they do it, Maybe we should be thinking about some kind of regulatory mechanism or something Mm -hmm. that's going to restrict the worst of this. But you're right, it's qualitatively different from attacking civilian infrastructure. And we've seen, you know, various incidents where energy grids have been targeted and so on. Whether the Mumbai thing was the Chinese or not, I don't know. But we have seen other demonstrable cases where in the US, energy infrastructure has been targeted. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, in 2020, sorry, in 2015, the UN Group of Governmental Experts on Information Security, um, uh, the, the P5, the Permanent Five of the UN Security Council, and a bunch of other states uh, signed up to a set of um, 11 norms and principles, one of which was you shouldn't um, target civilian infrastructures through cyber means. And yet we see this all the time. Mm-hmm. So even though the norm has been worked out consensually by the, all the powerful actors in this space, we're still seeing potentially that kind of operation being undertaken by those very same actors that have signed up to this in the first place. And that was six years ago.
0: Now, so <laughs> you said that was the, uh, that was the, the permanent five uh, members of the, of the UN security council or amongst others. Yeah. And they put their name, they, they signed the document.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the UN group of governmental experts universally known as the GGE uh, always has the P five on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, US, UK, France, China, Russia, uh, and then a bunch of other states, I think it's about 20 other countries at the moment. And their job is through a two-year cycle to work out the norms and the rules of the road for the uh, responsible state behavior. And that's seen as a process that kind of can help states work out what to do, and what they cannot do, um, but uh, without uh, committing to a full treaty mechanism mm-hmm. that, that, there's, that the US doesn't want. Um, right. Uh, and they're not the only ones and, who don't want and, it. Either. And,
0: and the, the U.S. has long not wanted that. I mean, that wasn't that that, that, that that transcends presidential administrations, democratic and republican. Yes, it does. Yeah, and that, that goes back,
1: I think, to about the year 2010, um, and probably longer than that. If I'm not sure, the history of that particular uh, theme has been written yet. But this is a fairly long-standing commitment, not now, now, to have an international treaty.
0: Do other great powers profess to? be in favor of such a thing does russia say well we'd like to we'd like to have a treaty does china say well we'd like to have a treaty
1: russia and china say exactly that and they they have you know produced in the past draft versions of what this thing might look like um and uh attempt to get other countries on side for a treaty it's great pr if you say you want a treaty Mm -hmm. that's going to govern this type of behavior and the evil empire of the united states doesn't then it, you're kind of winning the PR battle a little there. But let's be clear about why the United States says it doesn't want a treaty. It says because international law already applies and it's just a question of working out how. And part of the question of working out how is developing these norms at the United Nations um, that, are, that are fleshing out precisely what states can and cannot do. The argument, therefore, is we don't need a new treaty because the whole of international law already applies to this environment. So why do we need a new treaty mechanism. Whereas Russia and China say, yeah, but international law as it stands allows other countries to interfere with our domestic network as part of this kind of international sort of global cybersecurity culture, if you like, and we can't possibly have that because we need well, wait, to have sovereign control. Is that control. true
0: that international law permits the penetration of their systems for some reason or what
1: uh, not i not that's not, not my understanding of international law but but what i think the russians and the chinese and others are saying is look we need to have a confidence that you aren't going to come over our territorial borders and start messing with stuff and it doesn't just mean in a cyber sense it just means in a normative sense now we reserve the right to exercise sovereign control over our territorial
0: internet in seems reasonable i well i i, I see well, what you mean surface, you, yes it does so, so you <laughs> I mean, this does, does this get into like uh, control of speech issues and stuff, or
1: it does precisely, yeah. So
0: that's that's okay, but it seems like these are in principle separable. I mean, you could have a treaty that says you can't blow stuff up and take out power grids <laughs> in other countries. Uh, that would not get into the question of whether China mm. uh, can control speech on its internet, right?
1: Right, I mean, but. But these two visions of the Internet are aligned to ideological visions of what the Internet is for. Uh, the Internet in the West, at least in policy and strategy, is for it to be open and interoperable mm-hmm. as a means of uh, promoting democracy and the free market. That's not the vision of what the Internet is for in authoritarian countries or countries. with Right. I know, I, I know systems. that. Right. I
0: just don't see why you can't separate the two issues.
1: Well, it might serve certain countries better not to. I mean, the Russians seem to be very keen on on saying one thing and just playing the game. Uh Um, And you could say the same about the United States, which wants to maintain its freedom of movement in this environment without any kind of uh, uh, sort of awkward treaty that might prevent it from doing so.
0: Now, it seems to me that that, uh, it would be in America's interest, if you imagine that such a treaty were enforceable. If you could wave a magic wand and ensure that no countries would be taking out power grids of other countries or attacking their nuclear facilities uh or anything, you know, for the rest of eternity, it would be smart for America to sign on to that, right? I mean, given the fact that A we're our our, our dominance of technology is manifestly fleeting, B the the future is unpredictable. You know, it it would that would be probably in the self-interest of of all of these nations. Right.
1: I think what it was, what, what would happen is that, yeah, I mean, you on the face of it. Absolutely. Yes. Because not only would you uh, be signing up to a set of um, or be signing up to an agreement that effectively protects your own network and potentially at least. Or, or, and just makes um, the
0: world more stable. Just well, makes, yes. you know
1: if it works, but this is the problem with the magic wand. Uh, The thought
0: experiment is you have a magic wand. The question is, is whether you believe it is or is not in the self-interest of a great power to actually pursue such a treaty if it's feasible. I I grant that that's a huge if, but But if it's feasible from a strategic point of view, a point of view of self-interest, seems to me it is. It's like, who needs instability in the like we don't have enough instability in Mm. the modern world or something. What is the argument against this?
1: Yeah, the, the the argument is because it's not enforceable. I think.
0: Well, okay, and, but and, 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 but we're in my magic realm right now. Okay, <laughs> I don't want to talk about that for the next thirty seconds. The question is, if if it were enforceable, would it hmm. be smart at a national level? Yes, it would. Okay, thank you. <laughs>
1: but it's not enforceable, so that's why states are having to think about how else to to um, to do this, and that's why we're talking about norms. What are the these-
0: intermediate? means
1: what other Uh, ways to do this are there well this this is what i was going to say because um at the moment the you know we have these norms and principles and so on and the conversations in global governance are around how we get states to implement those norms and then there's a whole sort of confidence building measures strand of that uh intelligence and information sharing uh and, and and the whole kind of cyber security capacity building agenda which is totally overlaps with the development agenda as well uh, and of digital economies and so on is a way of kind of binding states together in this mutual understanding that doing these good things is good for you but it's also good for everybody else too you know it's like the stability uh, the kind of economic growth arguments are all part of that um but if you sort of start hitching liberal democratic arguments onto that you, you're going to come up against opposition because sure. not all countries want to be run like that um, um,
0: okay, that stuff sounded kind of vague to me uh, i mean I, I in the sense that i don't know exactly what it means it's like uh I mean, I understand uh the idea of uh just convincing people that it would it's all in all our interests. I mean, there are such things as norms that are respected yes and, and, and this is one thing that bothers me about the Stuxnet attack is that that just greatly compromised our ability to lead in the development of a global norm here, greatly and enduringly reduce the chances of uh, my children growing up in, in a world that is stable in this particular way. Uh, yeah. And so I don't know, nobody's going to listen to us on this subject. I assume. <laughs> well, how, how does this, how does this norm get off the ground?
1: This, well, this, this is a really, I mean, there's so many nuances to this conversation, but you're right. that's I mean this Stuxnet was never meant to be public, okay? It's meant to be a clandestine operation. But you can't operate in this environment and assume that at some point somebody's not gonna find out, right? Right. So Stuxnet happened. We also over a similar period having the whole fallout from Snowden. Uh and Snowden and Stuxnet are very different things, okay, but it didn't half make the Americans look bad and anybody else who hitched their wagon to them. Um by which I mean my own country, you know. Um but what it, what it did, and the Chinese in particular were very, very clear about this, saying you cannot preach to us mm-hmm. about an open, interoperable, transparent internet for the good of humanity when you have demonstrably uh, uh, gone out and done things, even against your own people, that make us look like positively like saints compared to what you've done. You have lost the moral high ground. Yep. You have lost the, the, the kind of capacity, as exactly as you say, to lead on this issue, and of course, many others besides. Um So it, it has been a problem. And, you know, US diplomacy in this area has been difficult, I would argue. Um, and, you know, it, it's hard to argue against China, that Chinese position, when the evidence suggests that on that particular issue, the Chinese are right. So it, it, it has been an enormous challenge. Yeah
0: and and in terms of uh you know my saying some of this stuff sounded vague uh what would you say to that i mean you were you were uh, uh you were saying you know you is more and more yeah. i forget the phrases but some kind of like yeah. uh collaboration Companies or meshing of infrastructure yeah, yeah. or something yeah, yeah. or other what's an what's an example of something uh, kind of concrete that would facilitate uh the emergence of of norms here uh yeah So um,
1: as you will not be surprised to hear, um, a lot of international diplomacy is about talking to people, whether in the kind of track one formal intergovernmental way or whether track 1.5 or track two behind the scenes with civil society and industry and so on. And a lot of that is about, I mean, it's always says that, you know, cybersecurity is a team sport. It's all about trust. It's all about knowing your OPPO in whatever country or whichever company and it is a lot about that and, and and building up trust between governments and various other um, agents in this space, but also in implementing things like confidence building measures and CBMs, as they're called in the jargon, um, can be very, very useful. It's the sort of thing where you don't just get diplomatic liaisons, but you also get mutual kind of military uh, arrangements that allow... Uh, You know, one country to go and visit another's Navy once every three years. And you go and have a look around. The Admiral Mm -hmm. takes you out on the, 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 Mm -hmm. the aircraft carrier and you go and have a look at a missile battery and you have lunch in the mess and all that kind of thing. And you get to have a look about and you get to know people personally. And that can be very, very useful when it comes to crisis management. Really difficult to do in cyber. Because you as you know, we said earlier, you can't see the code. But what you can do is you can actually say, "Well, look, this is the policy we're developing. This is the doctrine we're developing. The military space. This is the money. This is our budgets that we're putting into this. This is who we're helping. This is what happened. This is who we're working with." And just trying to be a bit more transparent about exactly what it is that you're doing.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: this is about this is, comes back to this intelligence issue. People spy because they want to know the disposition of the enemy, as uh, as we you know Sun Tzu is alleged to have said. Uh, and um, you want to know what your enemy is doing and you want to know what your enemy is thinking, even if your enemy is potential or actual. And intelligence is absolutely crucial to that. That's why we spy. And it's the same in the cyber environment as well, but you're not actually always going to be able to spy in quite the same way as you, you, you once could. Um, but you can develop other mechanisms of generating information about the disposition of your enemies, adversaries, friends, uh, competitors, whatever it happens to be. So trying to be imaginative about how countries interact with one another, even countries that might not ordinarily like to. You know, let's not forget that we have military uh, cooperation missions with the Russian. Right. Um, We don't necessarily have them in the cyber realm, as it were, but um, there are international structures that exist purely to manage uh, NATO-Russian tension and European-Russian tension. So there are precedents for this. And trying to maximize those in, in, in in the diplomatic, and then sort of track 1.5, track two ways really uh, is really where a lot of effort is going at the moment, mm-hmm. um, because trying to you know manage expectations, share knowledge about best practices, uh, try and determine, you know, are we implementing the norms that we signed up to uh, and so on and so forth is all part of this. And I, you know, people will look at the outside and go, "Well, that's all very, very vague. Um, and I understand that because it can take years to develop these. Uh, but there is a lot of effort going into these i mm-hmm. can promise you
0: you know one thing this makes me think uh i mean if 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 i accept your view that at least in any kind of near time uh near term framework uh a treaty is not practical because of verification issues um and so you have to focus on kind of develop norms confidence building and so on it it makes me think that in that case it's even more important not to create gratuitous antagonism between countries. You know, wh- what I mean is, it- it's like the Iran nuclear uh, deal, that's like a concrete deal with verification. It wasn't formally a treaty, but it was structurally like a, it, it had those hallmarks. Here's what you can't do. We're going to have inspectors. This would constitute a violation. This would be the punishment and so on. And when you've got something like that in place, I mean, if you imagine that the Trump administration had not abandoned it, but once it's in place, that can actually survive a fair amount of antagonism between the parties. And in fact, during the Cold War, when, when uh, rhetoric, even when rhetoric was extremely harsh, we, we, we sometimes had arms control agreements, whereas it just seems to me that kind of politically, when what you're doing, instead of having a structure like that, is you've got these various different... Uh, conduits of collaboration, cooperation that collectively uh, uh, amount to an infrastructure for good norm enforcement. It seems to me like that kind of thing is going to be more susceptible to disruption from hostility between nations, if that makes sense.
1: Hmm. Does it? Yeah, it does make sense. Let's not be under any illusions here. This is not easy. There is no kind of silver bullet to this problem. Um, and as more and more states develop these capabilities and the intent to use them, this problem is going to get more profound. And I think we're already at something approaching a crisis point in respect of the geopolitics of this. Uh, Russia can act with impunity. Uh, the U.S. and China can do the same pretty much. They've signed up to different visions of what this environment is for. And yes, um there are mechanisms available for trying to do something about it. And I guess the question, I, I, I've been critical of this in the past, Uh, and written about this, where because a treaty, a global treaty, isn't immediately obvious and apparent, uh, we should just abandon any attempt at regulating this environment. My argument would be the opposite. It would say, well, okay, see, a treaty's out of reach, but how about all this other stuff we could do? Don't waste your energy on a treaty if it's not going to happen. Let's do all these other things, confidence-building measures, memoranda of understanding, uh, kind of liaisons, exchanges, uh, all sorts of diplomatic kind of activities... Uh, involve civil society in a properly kind of multi-stakeholder way, and the same for industry and academia. Um, and let's think about how to approach these solutions. Because the problem with thinking about treaties all the time is that it's, it's, a, it's a multilateral mechanism, which means you're principally relying on governments to solve the issue. And this isn't just a governmental issue, even though clearly it's governments that are doing the worst of, of these operations to one another. There have to be approaches developed outside the kind of uh, group think and sometimes relatively stultified ways that we think about decisions and problem solving. So it has to involve a much wider range of, uh, of parties. And that's only going to happen if we experiment with some of these other measures. Um, you know, you, you really cannot go into the, the contemporary world and say, this is the way to deal with this. And you'll be fully aware, Bob, you probably have people on this show who go, right, this is black, this is white. And this is how we, this is the only way that this can happen. Right. Sorry, I'm an academic. I can't think like that. I'm like you. I have to be sceptical about this and go, OK, I can see the pros. I can see the cons. I can also see where it's of use to try this um, without the expectation that it's necessarily going to succeed. Obviously, that's a much more difficult proposition for a government to enter into than it is just some lone scholar. But, you know, there is there has to be a kind of change of mindset. And I think it is happening. Um, but at the same time, we're seeing a hardening of high level geopolitical. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, interests that, that is quite worrying. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't think it's just cyber that's affected by that. I think, you know, our bigger problems are probably nuclear right now or even conventional, but it's all part of the package. But, right? but,
0: but, but progress on this would be one casualty of the, the new cold war that people are envisioning, uh, between the US and China.
1: Yeah. Because you have to have will to make things happen. You know, it, it is quite straightforward for the president of the United States or indeed of uh, of China or the Soviet, or the Russian, sorry, to say, well, we're going to stop meddling in enemies' information infrastructures. Mm -hmm. It would happen, it would stop overnight, apart from various elements of the intelligence community that would carry on doing it anyway. Um, But you could stop it, but it it needs political will, and you can have as many talk shops as you want. Um, But, you know, without that political buy-in, it's not going to happen. So even though we've all agreed six years ago, five and a half years ago, that these were all a good idea. We're still talking about it now. And absent political will, and I think, we you know, there's a lot of kind of, um, there's a dearth of collaborative spirit right now, despite COVID, um, you know, absent that, I think it's, it's incredibly difficult proposition.
0: Okay, final question is kind of how bad could this get? I mean, the ability to take out a power grid, which exists in principle, clearly, um, is, uh, you know, pretty powerful thing uh, I mean you, you I, I know in 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 your book you get into uh you know uh, the apocalyptic thinking about this mm-hmm. um how what, what are some uh do you think people are not worried enough too worried and what what are some specific uh things that could be bad?
1: Yeah, I think I think we have to accept that there are possibilities for really bad things to happen. Um, by the same token, we're quite lucky. Nothing really bad has happened so far. We've developed uh, a global infrastructure that's as uh, deeply interconnected and interdependent. And it is possible in complex systems like that for something to go wrong in one place and to affect, uh, and if that's not just bad enough in the one place to, for it to spread somehow.
0: Um, well, we, through tit we for tat, for one thing, right? You keep... You you, you, retali- you take out one of their power grids, they do the same, blah blah blah.
1: yeah that's, that's escalation right um, but I'm thinking of just about the kind of the nature of the environment. so you have if a system goes down in one place and it causes a failure in another, the sort of cascading failure scenario. but yes, potentially there is potential for escalation. We've also not seen that, which is really, really interesting. and there's work by some American scholars that uh, demonstrates that actually states are not taking the opportunity to, to sort of for one-upmanship in this environment. In some ways, they're using it to diffuse tension. So what that might suggest... Although I would
0: say a number of attacks have been attributed to Iran, I don't know whether accurately, and that mm. they would make sense as retaliation for Stuxnet. It's, it's what i do I'm if I were sure, yeah,
1: Absolutely. Shimoon for example, against the Saudis um, uh-huh. was, was, was almost certainly Iran. I mean, I don't think anyone, including the Iranians, seriously disagrees yeah, with I that. I
0: mean, that wouldn't have been retaliation <laughs> for Stuxnet per se, probably, because that was the US and Israel doing that. But um, yeah. Uh, well, on okay. the
1: contrary, it probably was. Oh, retaliation. oh you think? Be- yeah. Because the Iranians did not want to attack the U.S. <clears throat> it's all right to attack Russia. Uh, sorry, if you're Russian or Chinese, to attack the U.S. because you're nuclear, you're nuclear armed. But you don't
0: want to be attacking if you're Iran. You don't want to be attacking what, what? Uh, the U.S. at that point. R- uh, what, so what, you a U.S. In, ally. What happened in that attack on Saudi Arabia? Did that was that a physical, physically no. consequential attack? It was just a no. Hack. It was a
1: cyber cyber operation against um, Saudi oil, uh, the, the main Saudi government oil company saudi aramco
0: but did it disable Uh, anything or just steal information yeah cost them a fortune it bricked
1: like a hundred thousand computers or something okay so that is that is that
0: is that is plausibly tit for
1: tat yeah 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 it was it was it was kind of you know offshoring your targets it's saying we can't attack the americans directly so we're gonna attack their allies in the gulf but the thing about i mean how bad could it get so it can happen by accident um Either you get this kind of cascading failure. Maybe you've done a really targeted small attack, but you've forgotten to take into account one thing and, and then something spreads and you end up taking out the continental, you know, power grid or something like that. Um, or, uh, you enter into an escalatory phase for which we've seen very little evidence, I would say. Um, or you do something really bad by design. So you're going to actually we're going all out on this one. We are deliberately going to um, degrade or destroy infrastructure <coughs> in a particular uh, country or whatever. Now, the thing is, when we're talking about peer competition in the international system, you'd have to be absolutely suicidal to do that against either Russia, China, or the United States, or indeed, arguably, some of its close allies like the UK or South Korea or Japan. Um, so what that suggests is that for those types of really deliberately severe Attacks to happen. And I'm not talking espionage a la solar winds. We are talking about taking out power mm-hmm. grids, water supplies, and so on. It suggests that you're already in a state of hostility. And, and, and this is kind of an adjunct to that or, or a desire to escalate somehow. And I think if we're getting to that point of deliberate cyber attacks like that, we may already be in an exceptionally dangerous situation. So, um, my. Optimist, wearing my optimist hat, I would say we're not likely to see deliberate attacks of that sort against, for example, critical infrastructures or nuclear command and control or, um, sensitive military systems. We'll see a hell of a lot of IP theft and espionage, but we're not going to see the kind of destructive denial sabotage attacks, um, that, that, that we could potentially dream of. Although, of course, the best example of that is Stuxnet. Mm-hmm. and thrown back on this problem of, well, you did it, Um, why can't we? Mm-hmm. Um, but the U.S. could do it because they can beat anyone who tries to respond or to retaliate.
0: I mean, in general, as more and more of our world comes under the control of, uh, you know, digital processes – just in principle, vulnerability grows, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, and when you think about the satellites, uh, you know, many of which exert kind of a stable. I mean, reconnaissance satellites ex- often exert a stabilizing influence in the sense that if, if if we are confident that we can see that the Russians aren't attacking us, and they are confident that they can see that we're not mobilizing for an attack, and, and all that, you know, that's a stabilizing thing. But in principle, you could you could take out. Uh, you can take out satellites uh, with, with, with cyber as well as kinetically, right?
1: Yeah, you could. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of concern about that space-cyber kind of nexus. Um, and you're right. I mean, if you have knowledge of the enemy's disposition, intentions, order of battle, et cetera, et cetera, it can serve to reduce tensions and avoid escalation. And the problem, I mean, you can make that argument for cyber espionage and say, look, if we, if we just – all in everyone's, uh, everyone's networks all the time. Everyone's doing it. Then we can be fairly confident that they're not, they're not up to no good over there. And they mm-hmm. know that we're not planning an attack over here. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, mm-hmm. um, is that quite often the same tools that you use for reconnaissance are the, precisely the same tools you might use for an attack later. Mm-hmm. And if you're, a, if you're a defender in those networks, they can look the same because they are basically the same, but you don't know what the intent is behind it. You ah. don't know that they're just spying on you. You might be thinking that they're potentially going to launch an attack against you, right? So that kind of certainty you might have when you're tracking missile batteries from space is lost uh, in in network defense um, because you're not entirely sure what the intentionality is behind the positioning of that piece of code in your in your in your system.
0: You can definitely imagine false flag attacks in a vol- volatile environment uh, being being pretty consequential.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the famous one was a few years ago when TV Saint-Germain in Paris was just about to hit the air and it was subject to a cyber attack. And all over the, the website was like, you know, this is a, the, uh, um, I can't remember the, it was basically blaming it on the caliphate. There's a, there's a name uh-huh. for the group, um, Cyber Caliphate, I think they were calling it. it. turned out it wasn't. It turned out it
0: wasn't, yeah. <laughs> it was what, right, right wing? Uh, it a, no, it was the Russians. <laughs> it was the Russians. Well, at least they have a sense of humor. Um, yeah. <laughs> the uh, so uh, final question. I think I may have already said that this really is a final question. Uh, a, a term I've heard is uh, a, a Geneva, a digital Geneva Convention. <laughs> I have heard it more coming from corporate actors than from political actors. Brad Smith, mm-hmm. uh, president of Microsoft, says we need a digital Geneva Convention that will commit governments to protecting civilians from nation-state attacks. In times of peace, um, I, I'm not sure what kinds of whether what kinds of attacks he means, whether he includes surveillance or what. But but I guess uh, my question is, uh, wh- why is it wh- I, I, whenever corporations propose something that sounds high minded, I get a little suspicious. But um, but but do you know why it is that that this initiative seems to be coming more from the corporate world than from? Yeah, weather. I mean,
1: pe- people have written about this and, and you wouldn't be the first person to be slightly skeptical about the, uh, the sort of the corporate reasons why this might happen. I mean, a lot of people say this is just Brad Smith's personal hobby horse. And he's just mm-hmm. really committed to the idea of global stability in cyberspace well, and whilst to think there? about how, yeah, I mean, you know, most of us could actually sign up to that, right? Um,
0: that's so, a better I mean, explanation than the standard explanation for a corporate <laughs> behavior. Actually, I like that. Well, yeah.
1: I mean, but of course stability is good for business potentially as well. well and it would be very kind of Western vision of stability, <laughs> arguably, which is, you know, it's a, you can sell into these, these networks and so on. But you know, he's making some interesting points. He's saying we sell this kit into various countries. Why should we allow our, our systems and networks and our clients to be uh, exploited by foreign powers that might wish people harm?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and that includes. You know, the American government and their allies, too, you know, and they're saying we don't want our, the infrastructure that we sell to be used for harmful attacks against civilians. Again, we can kind of all sign up to that as well. Um, and I mean, the problem, of course, comes, as it always does, through the optics of kind of what a, country, a company like Microsoft actually does, which, of course, it makes billions out of U.S. government contracts and other government contracts as well. You know, so you've got to square that away somehow. So um, you, know, you know, Brad Smith is a very energetic character. I'm sure he, he does a fairly uh, robust job of of explaining that situation. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, this is one of those experiments in global governance, or a contributor to global governance. But what use will it have in the end? Uh, what use will it be in the end? Sorry. And and you know, I'm I'm all up for it actually, uh, in terms of a kind mm. of a, an experimental mode of organisation that might generate some norms around state. Oh, sorry. My bolster or the existing norms will generate new ones around what should be happening on the network. Um, and the question, is, as it always is, is who's actually listening to this? Uh, what is the audience? Yeah.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much, Tim. Uh, again, uh, you're the author of Cybersecurity and the Politics of Time. You're King's College. Uh, why don't you give people your Twitter handle, which you will have to do, because I got to say, it's not the most memorable Twitter handle I've ever... <laughs> This
1: is just TCS TVNS. It's just it's, just, uh, uh, it's uh, my name with most of the virus. Yeah, I can down. tell it
0: was uh, some variation on your name. It's just uh, it doesn't have those m- mnemonic properties uh, of. Uh,
1: yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, but uh, you know, I'm not a massive Twitter user, so I don't lose any sleep over it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, it's distinctive. Uh, okay. So thanks so much. Maybe uh, there's a huge hack somewhere. We'll, uh, we'll 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 see if you have time to come back and talk to us about it. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Okay. Take care. Nanji.